company. Um, I will say no more now because I bore the rest of the congregation. Um, I'm just going to pray before we start. So, living and loving God, take these words and breathe your spirit through them so that they become food and life for each one of us. Amen. You know, there's not many lectures that I remember from training. To be fair, it was quite a long time ago now, um, and I have slept since then quite a lot. But there is the odd one or two that I do remember. And one of those was when my New Testament lecturer, so it's fairly on in the, uh, fairly early on in the journey, when they talked about hermeneutical spectacles. Typical theology, very big words. But basically, hermeneutics is the theology and the practice of interpretation. And the point that she was trying to make is that when we read a biblical text, we tend to, almost subconsciously, read this through our own experience and our own culture. Which is why when we look at a text, we are encouraged to do some investigation, to look at the background, what was happening when this was going on, to look at the context, where does it fit in the story of the book that you're reading? And we look to understand the world of the author and his first listeners, because in doing so, we can gain a deeper insight into what the passage might be saying. Throughout this series, as we look at this set of Psalms, we are considering two questions. Question one, what did it mean for Jesus to sing these words? And two, what does it mean for us to sing these words? And to answer each of those questions, we are going to have to put on a different set of hermeneutical spectacles. But before we do that, um, let's actually have a look at the psalm itself. So a couple of weeks ago now, Ben spoke about the context of this set of psalms and how this was the album or the soundtrack that accompanied the Passover meal. And it is thought that whilst Psalm 113 and 114 would have sung before the meal, that the Psalms from 115 onwards would have been sung after the meal. And if that is correct, then this Psalm would have been sung after the telling and the remembering of the story of how God had saved his people from slavery and Egypt. And so perhaps this psalm is a response to that story. But I think as we look at it, it's helpful to remember that this is almost set into that context of hearing the story of what God has done. The psalm in its entirety contrasts the difference between Yahweh and the idol. So I'm going to use Yahweh as the word uh, for God. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons for doing that. And if I started to explain those, you'd be here till Christmas 
I don't think that's what you want. Um, but just accept that Yahweh is God, the almighty God, and I will use that word going forward. So the psalm in its entirety contrasts the difference between Yahweh and idols. Christopher Wright, in his text, The Mission of God, speaks of the idea that the gods of a nation are a collective human construct of that nation's pride. And so within the nations that lived aside Israel, the glory of a god is identical to a glory of a nation's pride and vice versa. So effectively, the god and the nation are kind of interlinked. And you praise the god and the nation is praised. That, that they're interconnected within that. And so Christopher Wright says, to glorify the gods, God, sorry, to glorify the nation's God usually meant praising their combined military might. The two are interlinked. And yet the Israelite psalmist opens his psalm with a plea that Yahweh is actually worthy to be praised for who he is, to be praised for his distinct identity and character, to be praised for his love and faithfulness. And this is not tied to the nation, his nation. This is not tied to the people of Israel. There is something here about the visibility of God. So unlike the gods of the other nations, Yahweh is not seen. And this is an accusation, actually, that is thrown at Israel in verse 2. It's almost like a, my God's better than your God. But there is this sense of competition that is happening between the nations at that time. And the more powerful your God is, the more powerful you are. And so the nations around them are saying to Israel, where is your God? But you see, verses 3 and verses 4, so we've seen the accusation in verse 2, but in verses 3 and verses 4, the psalmist says, Our God is in heaven. And that is not like your gods which live on earth. Your gods that are made with human hands. And this is expounded in verses 5 and verses 8 as you go through that. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. There is that subtext that says, actually, Yahweh can speak because he speaks through his people. Yahweh can hear because he hears through his people. Yahweh can smell because he smells through his people. He can do things because he does it through his people. And that, of course, with hindsight from 2,000 years ago, with hindsight and the fact that we live now 2,000 years on, we can see that the irony of all of that is that it's literally that. But the theory always was that God would be visible through his people. That was to be the difference. That was to make, uh, that would be what made Israel distinct. And people would come to know Yahweh because they would see Yahweh through the nation of Israel. 
That was the plan and that was the theory. God would be visible through his people in the way that they worshipped, in the way that they loved, in the way that they interacted with one another. And you see that unfolding in the remainder of the psalm. Verses 9 to 11 are a call for the people, of the people, Israel, the priests, Aaron, and all those who fear God, which may refer to those from other nations who have chosen to worship Yahweh, or simply just those who fear God within Israel, the commentaries actually differ on what that means, to place their reliance in Yahweh, for he is both able to support and protect those who trust in him. Verses 12 and 13 tells us that from trust comes assurance. Assurance is this mark of God's people. And again, notice the characters, the, the categories previously are now repeated. Assurance is for the people, Israel, for the priests, Aaron, and for all those who fear God. This is a personal relationship which is held with each and every one of them. And it is followed by a blessing, which you'll see in verses 14 and 15. The psalm then concludes in verses 16 to 18 with praise once again. Praise of Yahweh who reigns over the heavens and the earth. The earth being the space where human activity takes place. And there's a reminder that time is not unlimited. And there will be a time when we stop praising as an individual. But yet through the community, the praise of the name of Yahweh will continue. And this is really reminiscent or, or reminds me of the continual praise of Yahweh, which we found actually only in the psalm, couple of psalms before, in Psalm 113, that Ben spoke about a couple of weeks ago. So let's put on the first of our hermeneutical spectacles. I quite like those words. You're, they're going to be running around your head all for the rest of the day, I can promise you. What did it mean to Jesus as he sung these words? So at the sharing of the Passover, Jesus and the disciples would have once again heard the story of God saving his people. They would have remembered the plagues that ended in death of the firstborn of every creature, with the exception of those who had followed the instructions and marked the doors of their homes with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. They would have heard the story of the crossing of the Dead Sea into the Promised Land. And the biblical texts tell us that Jesus knew what was coming. On several occasions throughout the gospel narratives, we see Jesus trying to prepare the disciples for what is to come. And we saw that this morning in our gospel reading. So I wonder that as Jesus celebrated the feast in that moment, that the Thursday night before he went to the cross, I wonder, knowing all that was to come, did the story feel a little different this time 
for him? Was there a sense of foretelling his own journey that he was about to walk over the next four days? Was there a weightiness to this that wouldn't have been there before for him? And if that was the case, would to have singing this psalm have been a comfort to him? Would it have been something to cling on to, to give him strength? For the psalm would have been a reminder that Yahweh, although not seen, is real. That Yahweh is the one to be relied on, the one to take his assurance from, the one who could be trusted. And with all that he was to face, it would only be Yahweh that would get him through some of that. And it's kind of as I say that, there's kind of that heart-wrenching moment of knowing that at that point of being on the cross, Yahweh is not there any longer. But maybe at the start of the journey, it was enough for him to take that first step. But of course, all we can do is wonder, for we will never know for sure what Jesus was thinking or feeling at that point in time. So let's take off those hermeneutical spectacles and put on our second set. So what does it mean for us to sing these words? In thinking about this and in finding an answer to this, there are a couple of bits of information that I think is worth holding to mind. The first is this, that in entering the promised land, it wasn't empty. Israel kept bumping into other nations, nations who had a very different culture to themselves and who often followed different gods and would make images of these. And secondly, the other bit of information is that the people of Israel found it difficult to trust Yahweh and they would often go their own way and that even included building their own images or idols. You only need to look at Exodus 32 and the story of the golden calf to realise that. These two bits of information seem to me to reflect the world that we live in ourselves. Many of the people we meet are different to ourselves in terms of worldview, in terms of experience, in terms of values, and in terms of priorities. But I want to say that is good. It is a good thing to meet those people. But there are many challenges to navigate And sometimes it can be hard to trust the one who cannot be seen. Of course, he can be seen, because who is he seen? How is he seen? So as we ourselves walk through the Easter story, and hear once again the story of Yahweh's saving plan, as we listen to all that Jesus experienced so that we ourselves might be reconciled to our creator, so that we ourselves might have that personal relationship with him, 
so that we ourselves might know and come to trust, to rely and to take our insurance from him. I think then singing this psalm is a reminder that firstly, Yahweh is worthy to be praised for no other reason than for his identity, for his character and for his love and faithfulness that he has shown to all those who have feared him throughout the ages. This psalm then becomes a reminder that God continues to make himself visible through his creation in the way that we love and look after one another. And this is not exclusive, I don't think, to the church community. For I'm convinced that where I'm convinced that God is found where the gifts and fruit of the kingdom and the fruits of the spirit are found. When I talk about gifts of the kingdom, I'm talking about that sense of love, of a sense of life, a sense of liberation, and a sense of learning. When I talk about the fruits of the Spirit, I'm talking about joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and self-control. In all of those places, I believe that we find God, because he has created it. So this psalm is a reminder to place our trust in God in all things, to rely on him and to receive his assurance and his blessing. And it is a reminder that in singing this psalm, we too participate in the continual praise for the name of the Lord who has that has continued throughout generations to this time and will continue to be that we today are just as much part of that worship as the Israelites and those who have believed and worshipped throughout the ages. The psalm reminds us that God is worthy to be praised, that God is worthy to be trusted, and that we are just a part of that continual story. Amen. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, our creator, our saviour and our sustainer, we come from different places this morning. Some from places of joy, some from places of pain, some from places of indifference. And yet in each of those places, Lord, may we worship you and worship your name, for you are worthy to be praised. And Lord, as we worship you, help us to trust you in all that we are experiencing and in all that we are going through and in all that we are dealing with. Let us not be distracted. Let us not wander off. But let us be focused on you. Amen.